This morning we encounter the last of seven signs in Jesus' ministry before his own resurrection. He will raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. We will also encounter the fourth of the seven I am sayings uh, that Jesus has for us in the Gospel of John. Uh, The fourth one is in the middle. It's the middle I am statement. It's the center. So it too is important. So important that we could say that all the others sort of orbit around it. In the opening verses, we are told that uh, something that hints at what is to come. John first tells us that Lazarus is sick and that his sisters are Mary and Martha, whom we know from other accounts in the Gospels. We are further told that Mary is the woman who anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the, the thing is, that doesn't actually occur until the next chapter. John has created for us a bit of a time warp, a bit of suspense. She did what? His first readers might have said, Where's that story? We find out in chapter 12 that once Mary had done this, Judas complained that Mary's actions were wasteful. He says, you could have sold that perfume and given the money to the poor. And perhaps you know that, as John tells us, that Judas didn't say this because he was concerned about the poor. Judas said this because he liked to steal money from the money bag when it was given. And then we read this in John 12, verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. So keeping up with the connections, Lazarus is sick, which connects us to Mary, which, who anointed Jesus for his burial one chapter over. So this, this story about Lazarus will parallel um, the coming chapters about Jesus. What happens with Lazarus will parallel what will happen with Jesus. This is John's way of telling us that. And there will be other details that John has woven into the story, into this passage that will link these two stories together. Martha and Mary send word about Lazarus back at the very beginning of the chapter. We know from other stories in the Gospels that Jesus does not have to come to someone in order to heal them. He can heal from afar, but he does not do that. Jesus knows something that others standing around him do not know, something Mary and Martha do not know. Chapter 11, verses 4 through 7. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed there. He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, Let's go back to Judea. Again, the language here is meant to point us toward what is going to happen with Jesus. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about being glorified, most often he is talking about his death. When Jesus speaks of being glorified, most often he is talking about his own death. But it is also used to speak of, uh, when he speaks of making his glory known to his disciples, which he did in John chapter 2 with the first sign, the changing of water into wine. Thus he revealed his glory to his disciples. So we know something is up. Jesus' glory was revealed in the first sign. Jesus' glory will be revealed in this last sign. All the signs in the middle are bookended by Jesus revealing his glory. John also tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus and his two sisters, and that because of that, so he stayed where he was two more days. Now, in what world is In what world is staying put an expression of love in that kind of situation? 
A world where God has bigger plans. A world where God has bigger plans. And then Jesus switches things up. After a couple days, he says, let's go back to Judea. And the disciples don't think this is a great idea initially. They see it as a trap, possibly. They tried to stone you the last time they were there. You were there, they say. And you want to go back? I don't think this is a good idea. Verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. The disciples do not want to go back to Judea out of fear, but Jesus says, look, we're running out of time. The sun is going down. We need to work while we still can. And so after a little back and forth because of this misunderstanding, Jesus finally speaks plainly so that no one misunderstands. Verses 14 through 16. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go. Let us also go so that we may die with him. I I preached this passage, I think the last time I preached this passage was in 2009. And there I admitted that I had always heard Thomas as being sarcastic when he says this. Oh, fine, let's go ahead. We'll, We'll go die with you. Fine. But now more than ever, I think I see Thomas as incredibly loyal and committed We've talked about belief and faith as allegiance, and that, exact, that is exactly who Thomas is here. He is loyal. He is willing to die with Jesus if it comes to that. And though Thomas has often been referred to down through the centuries as doubting Thomas, that is completely unfair. For here he is willing to surrender everything for Jesus. We're told in verse 17 when Jesus arrived in Bethany that Lazarus had been dead for four days. And that number mattered because the Jews believed that after three days the soul left the body. John wants us to know that Lazarus is really dead. Lazarus wasn't mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. No, Lazarus is all dead. Good and dead. People are grieving. There's no coming back from this. Or so they thought. Before Jesus ever gets to the tomb, he is met by Lazarus' two sisters one, time, at one, one at a time. Uh, Martha gets there first. And if you know anything about Martha in the other passages, you know that this woman gets things done. So she's off and running to go meet. Lord, Martha says, verse 21, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. Decades ago, a book was released that described or defined for us the five stages of grief and mourning. They were denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And if we had to put Martha into a category, based on what I see here, I might put her in the anger phase. She sounds a little ticked. 
If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's frustrated. They sent Jesus word. He didn't heal from afar, and they know he could have. He didn't come. Now, skip ahead a bit. Watch what happens with Mary, verses 32 to 37. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same words. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Mary uses the same words that Martha used. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But there's a difference. If Martha was in the anger stage, Mary is in the depression stage. She weeps. And Jesus weeps too. Notice how differently Jesus deals with these two women, both who are mourning the loss of their brother. They deal differently, at least at times, with their grief, and Jesus meets them there. Wherever we are in our grief, or in whatever, and wherever else we may be carrying around with us, Jesus meets us where we are. This is his grace toward each of us. And what is true of grief is true in every single area of life. Jesus sees us and meets us where we are. Jesus sees you and meets you wherever you are. No matter how you got there, Jesus will see you and meet you there. If we were angry, <clears throat> Jesus can take it. God is not timid, as some of the Psalms show us. Take a look at Psalm 13, Psalm 44, or Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross as he's dying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Apparently we can voice whatever we need to voice to God in whatever way we need to voice it. If we are sad, Jesus weeps with us. If we are angry, Jesus does not shut us down. He does not cut us off. We, we, we don't have to carry these things alone. Verses 38 and 39. Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Two things, one funny, one incredibly serious. Note the language in verse 38. There's a tomb, there's a cave, there's a stone rolled across the entrance of the cave. What does this remind us of? Jesus' own burial. In John 20, verse 1, we are told, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Same language that we encounter with Lazarus. This is a, a hyperlink that John wants to connect us and to remind us of the bigger story of which Lazarus is a part. So that's the serious part. The funny part? I absolutely love the way the King James Version of the Bible translates Martha's concern over the odor of the body. Lord, she says, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> For he hath been dead four days. Earlier, Martha exhibited some faith when she stated that even though Lazarus is dead, 
she does believe that God will give Jesus whatever he asks, even now. But now her faith seems to have faded. Don't, don't roll away the stone. It stinks. She really can't imagine what is about to happen. No one could imagine what is about to happen. Verses 40 to 44. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hand and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus once again, gently but firmly, draws Martha back to a place of belief. And then after a brief prayer, he calls Lazarus from the tomb, and Lazarus rises from the dead, the seventh sign, and Jesus' glory is once again revealed. But what does this seventh sign point to? It points to where things are headed in the coming chapters. It points to where things are headed in the coming chapters for Jesus. And it points also to that central I am statement we, he made back to Martha in, back in uh, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. It, it points to the kingdom reality that what Jesus will one day do for us all is available to us even now. He is the resurrection and the life. It would be easy to take this as one thing, but I think there's a reason there are two words there. All of this brings me to fun with words. Now, when we play fun with words normally, I just like to take a word, pick it apart, and show you what it really means. This morning, however, I want to introduce you to a fancy theological phrase that is packed full of meaning, and that phrase is realized eschatology. Say it with me. Realized eschatology. Second word first. Eschatology is a word that here means last things or the study of the end times or the last things. You can use it and amaze your friends at parties. But even more amazing is the first word that brings the second word into sharp focus. Realized. Realized. A word that here means to cause something to happen, to fulfill. To cause something to happen, to fulfill. When we put these two words together, we have one heck of a fancy theological term. But even more so, we have an amazing and hopeful and life-altering reality. When we talk about realized eschatology, we mean that the future is now. The future is now. We mean that in the best ways possible, God's final purposes are already coming into being. So sometimes people ask me, Pastor, don't you think we're in the last days? I say, I do. And I think we've been in them for over 2,000 years. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Apostle Paul writes this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. As soon as Jesus was raised from the dead, the last days made their way to us. 
the future began to make its way to us. New creation, a new heavens and a new earth are promised to us when God will remake and restore all things. That is our future hope and reality. But, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when we come to faith in Christ, when Christ dwells in us and delights in us, and we dwell in and delight in Christ, the new creation that will one day be fully established in the cosmos has already begun to come into being in and through us. That should get an amen. In and through us. Thank you. And see, that, my friends, is realized eschatology. We are living in the end times. And that is good news. If you have not yet heard Jesus call your name and call you out of that grave, he is calling you now. He's calling you not only to an eternity with him, but to an abundant, full life with him now as well. And that's why I think this particular I am statement has two phrases, two words, two images, not just one. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection refers to what will happen to us after we have died. We will live again. And by adding the words and the life to the promise, Jesus adds a second reality. They are not the same thing. They are two sides of the same sacred coin, perhaps, but they're not the same thing. Resurrected life is not only possible in the future, it is possible even now. The eschatological reality from the future is realized in Lazarus, it is realized in Jesus' own resurrection, and it is realized in your life and in mine as we become more and more like Christ, people who are being, uh, having Christ formed within us. Jesus told us this in last week's passage in John 10.10. He utters words that we could too easily pass over. They're just nice poetry. Speaking of himself as the good shepherd and us as his sheep, Jesus says this in John 10.10. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Last week I told you that the word translated as to the full in that verse can mean exceeding the need over and above, more than is necessary, super added, something further, much more than all, superior, extraordinary, surpassing, uncommon. Jesus promises us an uncommon life, a radically uncommon life. Sisters and brothers, I have been a Christian for 45 years. I, uh, when I graduated from Western Kentucky University, I graduated with a degree in religious studies. The last semester, I even made the dean's list. I graduated from North Park Theological Seminary with honors. I even got the Hebrew Bible Award. It's not as nice as the Onfelt medallion that Pastor Kristen got at North Park, but still, that's what it is. Kim and I served as missionaries in the Netherlands for five years. I have seen God do beautiful things in my life. I have sensed God calling me into ministry, and I've tried to follow that calling faithfully. I have 
stumbled and I have sinned and I have sought God's forgiveness and I have received it and I receive it still and never once have I doubted God's love for me or God's ability or desire to forgive me or to renew me. In my earlier, my younger years, I even had a charismatic renewal experience and became much more aware of and in partnership with the Holy Spirit at work in my life. But even with all of that, even with all of that, as recent as one year ago or less, I had not experienced the abundant life that God has for us in Christ to the degree that I have been experiencing this year. Even with all of that in my walk with Christ and all of his goodness to me, I'm, up until a year ago or less than a year ago, I had not experienced life to the full like I'm experiencing it today. I have tasted and I have seen and I have experienced the depth, the beauty, the power of life with God, our Emmanuel, God with us. I've experienced a level, a depth of that life to the full that I simply did not know was possible. Here's my dream. Here's my prayer for you, for all of us as a people. My prayer for us is that we will become so enamored with Jesus Christ, so filled and in tune with the Holy Spirit, so aware of and dependent on the Father God's love for us that we will begin to experience and know this uncommon life to the full like never before. So much so that everyone we encounter will know that we have been with the Lord and that God is with us. They will know that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that we will know that in and through us, God is present to others and to our world. That's my prayer. And my promise to you is that I will pray for that and I will pray for you and I will work harder than I've ever worked in my life to see that life come to you. I cannot make it happen. You cannot make it happen. It is not something we do. It is not something we earn. It is a gift that God gives us, and we must simply receive it. But my vision for you, for us as a people, is that we will do all we can to get ready to receive it whenever God wants to give it to us. And when we do that, when we begin to experience that, that, that is what will draw people to Christ. You and me living life to the full. You and I modeling the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Folks, I don't think that's just poetry. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So I think there are two possible responses to this good news. First, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, He is calling your name. He is calling you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can run out of the grave of your own sin and brokenness. Confess your need of Jesus to forgive you, to save you, to renew you, and it will begin. Second, 
Maybe you know Christ. But maybe you, like me, even a year ago, had yet to experience the fullness of life that we are promised. You have come out of the grave, but you're still wrapped in the grave clothes. And they're tripping you up. Take those grave clothes off and be set free. Discover all that God has for you. Be prepared to receive the gift of abundant life that Jesus so desperately wants to give us all. John 11, 1 through 44 is a dress rehearsal for Jesus' own death and resurrection. It is a dress rehearsal for our own death and resurrection. It is a dress rehearsal for the age to come when the dead in Christ will rise and God will remake and renew and recreate a new heavens and a new earth. But it is more than that. It is realized eschatology. The end times, alive and well, in through us, even now. An invitation to an uncommon life. It is the old made new and ever being made new. It is the dead coming to life again and the deplorable and the wounded and the malformed and the broken and the sinful finding wholeness and healing and grace, us dwelling in Christ and Christ dwelling in and delighting in us. That's my prayer. By the grace of God, let us be ready to receive that gift when God gives it to us. Would you pray with me as we close? Oh God, too often we settle. We settle for something less than the best. We settle for something less than all that you have to give us. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for our short-sightedness, for our blindness, for our stubbornness, for our lack of imagination, for our failure to engage in your word and to interact with your spirit and to see all that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Forgive us, Lord God, and renew us. And God, I know we can't make this happen. No more than we can save ourselves, Lord. We cannot make abundant life come to us. So I pray first of all, God, for any who are in this room or online, perhaps watching this even later, I pray, God, that if they do not know you, they will hear you calling their name. And they will pray this simple prayer, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. Renew me. Draw me to yourself. God, may they know that grace. May they know the depth of your love and your presence with them. And I pray, God, for those of us who have already responded to the gift of Jesus Christ. We have already come out of the tomb. But maybe what I'm talking about, what I've experienced, is completely foreign to some of us. Maybe to many of us. That deep down sense that you abide. That you're with us. That you enable us and empower us for new, new ways of living beyond our imagination. That we can know that you love us and go with us every moment of every day. That we can sense your presence and act and live and work out of the overflow of that experience. God, I pray for those among us who have yet 
to begin to experience the abundant life. God, would you prepare us as a people ready to receive that gift? And I ask, Lord God, that in your wisdom, in your timing, in your great love for us, that you would give each of us, one by one, increasing levels of this abundant, full, uncommon life that you are just waiting to give us. Lord, prepare us for it, prepare us to receive it, and be glorified in us, God. Be glorified in us, and give us the pleasure and the privilege and the joy of seeing others come to know you as well. We ask all of this in a strong and beautiful name of Jesus, who loves us, who died for us, who rose again, and has given us his spirit. Amen.